Welcome to the Ways and Memes podcast, the official podcast of Young Progressives Demanding Action. YPDA is a nonpartisan civic engagement organization dedicated to engaging young people in the legislative and democratic processes and training them to become effective organizers and advocates for the issues that matter most to our generation. Ways and Memes. Ways and Memes. Ways and Memes. All right, everybody, and we're back again with the Ways and Memes podcast. This time, we're going to be talking about the recent primary elections that just finished. Uh, but before that, to introduce uh, the people here, uh, first, I'll start with myself. I'm Jeff Kim, and I currently serve as a hub coordinator for the Sunrise Movement Honolulu Hub. And Hannah, if you don't mind going next. Hey, everyone. My name is Hannah Liebreich, and um, I am a, I'm finishing my PhD at UH Manoa. I do data for the nonprofit Partners in Care, which focuses on homeless issues. And I'm a recent graduate of Juliana Academy. I also was the treasurer for Becky Gardner's House District Race 20. So I think for this conversation, that is all relevant. Thank you. Okay. Um, hey everybody, my name is Will Carone. I'm the current co-chair of Young Progressives Demanding Action. Um, I am also uh, the uh, campaign manager for that, that same race that Hannah was just talking about, the Becky Gardner campaign in House District 20. Hi, my name is Tyler. I'm a settler of Korean and European ancestry born here in Honolulu. Um, I don't necessarily know what hat I'm wearing because I'm kind of going through quite a bit of a career transition out of both a job I had briefly held and now and now my grad school program i just left so um yeah i'm great to hear from you guys i'll try i'll probably for the rest of this be kind of quiet um if not on mute the whole time because um i didn't really do much with the electoral kind of politics this time around um yeah so and I, I really love and appreciate the work that you guys do my name's bart game um, I'm not sure which hat I'm wearing here. I did a little bit of sign waving for a few of the candidates and I kibitzed a little bit on Facebook. Um, I'm on the board of HAPA and we're the, we are the people who sponsor the Kuliana Academy, which tries to recruit young progressives, not even young, but progressives to run for office and give them the, the practical skills to run a successful campaign or to help somebody else run a successful campaign in a number of our people uh, were running this time. Um, I have been involved in democratic politics, but also non-electoral community-based politics for decades. Maybe I know something, but mostly I'm here to listen to what fresher minds are saying about what happened this weekend. Hi, my name is Fu Pham. Uh, I am a technical engineer located in Honolulu. I live in Honolulu City Council District 7, and during this election cycle, I canvassed and signed way for Radiant Cordero. Awesome. Okay. Uh, well, Will, do you mind, uh, yeah, since you, you were pretty uh, active on the uh, on campaigns this, this, uh, this cycle, do you mind kind of leading us off as far as a, a little bit of a discussion on overview? Yeah, sure. Um, so I basically, I, yesterday I went through um, the results, the statewide results, um, and just jotted down kind of like what it looked like was just going to be the, the final tally. Um, I think there's just a couple of races where it's still too close to call. Um, but for the most part, we know basically who won. Um, about half the Senate 
was up for um, election, and um, it looks like basically all of the the incumbents uh, won their primaries, if they even had a primary. Um, but there were a um, a couple empty seats. Um, Senate District Two, Joyce San Bonaventura, um, is going to be the the Democrat um, going for that seat in November. And um, let's see, also Senate District Twenty Five, um, Chris Lee is going to be the uh, the the Democrat um, challenging um, the Republican in that um, election in the fall. Um, and then. Uh, I guess the only other Senate district that was kind of interesting was um, Senate District, where is it? Senate District 19, um, which is currently uh, Kurt Favela's uh, district, and um, Rita Cabanilla uh, won her primary for the for the Democrats. Um, so she'll be challenging um, Kurt Favela in 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 the fall. Um, but there, for the Senate, it was interesting. I, I noted that a lot of the incumbents have a high percentage of blank votes. Um, and that's, that's pretty much true for all of the races, especially the ones where there wasn't a primary challenger. Um, we're talking, you know, anywhere between 20 to 30% blank votes, um, you know, 34% for Mike Gabbard. Um, so that's a lot of blank votes for a lot of these folks. So that's just something of interest in the house. Um, the house is obviously, I think where a lot of the discussion tonight is going to focus on. Obviously every, every house seat was up. Um, for election, there were uh, a number of open seats and a number of really um, competitive uh, elections against uh, incumbents as well. So um, I think there'll, there'll be a lot to discuss there. Um, in uh, in House District 5, uh, Janae Capella, who's a, a former YPDA board member, um, had a pretty commanding victory um, over her, her Democratic primary opponent and will be advancing to the general at House District 5. Um, in House District 11, Tina Wildberger um, had a commanding uh, victory uh, for re-election um, in the Democratic primary as well. Um, House District 13 is one of the ones that's still, I think, too close to call. That's Linda Coit um, or Walter Ritty. Um, one of those two will be advancing, and, and I think the vote total was under 100, so I think it triggers an automatic recount for that one. Um, Let's see, uh, in House District 20, that's the, the race that uh, Hannah and I worked on. Um, that was a, a four-person Democratic primary, one of the most competitive uh, Democratic primaries, if not the most competitive Democratic primary. Um, and, you know, good turnout. Uh, top three candidates uh, each got, you know, either close to 2,000 or above 2,000 votes each. Um, but in the end, the, uh, the person who came out uh, victorious was Jackson Sayama. Um, who is a very, very young candidate, uh, born in the district, and, and really, I think, um, we'll talk a little bit about later, but really worked really hard to, um, to canvas and, and talk to everybody in the district, and I think that, that was the, what came down to his victory there. Um, House District 22, another YPDA board member, this, this one current, Adrian Tam, um, defeated an incumbent uh, who is in leadership. That would be uh, outgoing rep Tom Brower. Um, in a, in a very close race, but I believe that one's been decided. That one's been, been called in, in Adrian's favor. So that's awesome for, you know, for progressives. It's great to have a, a YPDA board member, um, a sitting board member be elected to a seat, especially against an incumbent. Um, House District 30, Sunny Ganadin just pretty much flattened Romy Cachola. Um, just a really amazing uh, commanding victory. 
Um, and coming off of two years ago where he just barely missed it just by a handful of votes and then to just come back and just, just flatten that, that opponent in this race, um, I think really shows his um, growing roots and growing um, influence in that district. Um, so congrats, congratulations to him. Um, House District 36 is currently held by uh, a Republican, Val Okimoto, um, but she's going to get a strong challenge from Trish Lachika, um, who's uh, another uh, progressive person um, of interest. Uh, and um, just a couple more, House District 41, uh, Matt Lepresti, who uh, ran for Senate two years ago and didn't make it uh, and therefore was not in the House this past legislative biennium, uh, retook his old House seat. Um, so he'll be returning, most likely. Um, he, he does have some challengers in the general, but most likely will be returning. Um, House District 45, uh, another former YPDA board member, although only for a very, very short time. He, he joined and then resigned very, very shortly thereafter. Um, I think probably to, to gear up for this race. Um, that's Michael Chapman, uh, an, another young candidate, first-time candidate. Um, was unopposed in the Democratic primary, so didn't have a primary challenger um, uh, on this uh, August uh, 8 election, but will be going up against the Republican incumbent, Lauren Chico. Um House District 46, the mighty Amy Peruso is back. Um, it was... Uh, a little, it was a little closer than I thought it would be, um, but still, you know, she's still pretty, pretty easily uh, won in terms of, you know, it, it's not near, anywhere near close enough to argue about. Um, and um, we're really grateful for that because she's really a, a progressive champion right now, perhaps the progressive champion in the house right now. And then um, the last one, oh, actually, sorry, two more, two more. House District 48 um, was a really, uh, a really big bummer. Um, I think a lot of us were rooting for Cowie Pratt Aquino to, to take that seat away from incumbent Lisa Kitagawa. Um, and she did pretty well, but Lisa just uh, really had a commanding victory again um, in this race. So she'll be returning. And then lastly is House District 51, which is the seat that Chris Lee left to run for Senate. Um, and that, that one, uh, the Democratic primary victor, Martin, who I've heard good things about. Um, and, and so I think she'll, she'll be a, a good uh, representative if she makes it. Um, oh, sorry, there was one more. All of us were also rooting for Micah Pregitzer, um, who, who just barely missed out to Patrick Bronco. That was a really close one also. Um, so Patrick Bronco will be the Democrat there. Um, so those are the House race. Um, what, about, on, on, what, about go ahead. what about Kim Coco? Oh, and, yes. Like, how could I forget? How could I forget? Uh, one of the real, the, yeah, the real true, true heartbreaker. Uh, Kim Coco Iwamoto just barely missed taking out the Speaker of the House. Um, and that was, what district is that? House District 26. Um, so Scott Saiki just barely hung on uh, from a, a really, really strong challenge from Kim Coco Iwamoto, which that, that one really, what's that? Do you have the vote gap on you? I don't have it on me, but it was uh, it was very it was very narrow. Um, it was I don't think it was under a hundred, but I think it was um, you know approaching uh, a couple hundred away um, from 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 uh, from Scott Psyche. So that was that one's a real big heartbreak too, because that one really would have changed the dynamic of the house probably more than any of the other ones. Um, and then I just wanted to also just mention uh, in the OHA races. Um, Lana Kila Mangui, uh, who's a um, uh, Kiai for the Mauna Kea, um, a real leader in that movement, um, managed to get second, force a runoff against Keola Lindsay um, in the fall. 
another exciting one that he'll still be around and hopefully we can organize enough support for him to to win in a head-to-head against Kayla Lindsay. Um, so that's that's kind of the overview. There's obviously the mayor and some city council ones too. I don't have the as much data on those ones. I didn't make it to that one, but I, I'm sure we'll, we'll be able to talk um, a decent amount about some of those city council races and the Honolulu mayor's race as well and, and the prosecutor one as well if you'd like to. Um, which were all good races as well. So that's my, my quick, as quick as I could make it overview of what happened. Real quick, it was 162 votes for the Kim Coco Psyche race. Yeah, 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 real, real close, real close. Um, I think in a number of these races, you'll see that the number of blank votes uh, is higher than the deficit between um, the progressives that just came up short. So real, real tough for, tough for some of these that we didn't just we just barely missed some of them so so yeah to dive in a little bit about uh the elections after we gave it a little bit of overview uh i just want to kind of throw it out to the crowd uh, overall are we is this something that we're are we pretty happy with the results this year or not really mm. just just as a really crude question mm -hmm. bart what do you i feel like you probably have something to say what about you? Am I, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I looked at the numbers and, and I've been trying to turn them over again and again and find silver lining. I mean, I think, I think there is a silver lining in the voter turnout. And so there's been some discussion about how massive an in, of an increase that was. Um, there's a theory that because it was mailed out, because so many people are, are at home, that people actually took the time to cast their ballot, to, to look at it and figure out who they wanted to vote to for. Um, in general, progressives have held the, the idea that the greater the turnout, the more progressives have a chance of winning because the uh, traditional normal voter, regular voter is a homeowner, is likely to be professional class and, and wealthier, um, is someone who lives in a stable house instead of moving around and usually tends to be of a dominant uh, ethnic group and not minority. Uh, but in this case, even though there's a high turnout, while there were some close races, the Walter Ritty race on, Col on Molokai um, versus uh, Linda Coit, that was a, a, a nail biter. Uh, and then Kim Coco, of course, versus Scott Psyche. But in general, I don't think we did as well as many of us were hoping we were going to do, despite the high turnout. And I think that's because the other impact of COVID is that a lot of the more labor-intensive ways that progressive campaigns can compensate for not having much money or institutional support, namely going out canvassing and holding public meetings and stuff, were shut off from us this time around. So uh, had there been the opportunity to canvas, I think we would have done more, uh, would have done better. Um, there, there are a couple of races that sort of flummoxed me, and probably each one of those would be worth a deep dive, which I'm not capable of doing, but people trying to draw lessons from this cycle might want to look at them. Um, the interesting race uh, in House District 20, where you had Calvin say, give it up, and it was an open seat. So that allowed for different dynamics and we had four candidates and the one I think most of us were expecting was going to come in last came in first. Uh, and Becky, who I think was the 
strongest of the candidates in terms of most qualified, uh, you know, came in third. Uh, that one is worth looking at. Why did Jackson do so well? I, I, I did hear what Will said, that he, he actually uh, went door to door, did a lot of canvassing uh, early on, and that's true. I also noticed every time I drove by him, it seemed to be just sort of immediate family and friend that were sign waving for him. Uh, and that might have actually worked for him in the district. Um, so uh, some of us were aware there was a big union turnout for Jay Ishibashi, where I think maybe there were 200 people lining YLI uh, about a week or 10 days ago, holding signs for him. Uh, that didn't seem to have much impact. It may have even created some pushback. People, it was obvious these people from outside the district. So I think looking at that one and trying to figure out the dynamics, Jackson actually ran as a fairly progressive guy. Uh, so we might take some solace in that, even if we all love Becky and preferred Becky. Uh, the other race that is uh, flummoxing me a bit is uh, the district over in Kaniohi with Cowie Pratt versus uh, Lisa Kitagawa. Because yeah. Lisa didn't seem to do much campaigning. And to my eyes, Cowie was a very strong candidate. Yep. So it's worth talking to people who really know the district. Why is it that Lisa did so well? Um, it doesn't look like she did lots of mailers or anything. Um, and is, does it have to do with the demographics of who votes? Uh, and if so, what does that mean for campaigns in the future? I don't know what the answer is, but that one's worth a deep dive. Other thoughts on whether this was a success or not from folks or silver linings? I mean, I definitely think that um, that our numbers are growing in, in the house in terms of people that we can call allies. Um, so it's better than it was before, but I, I agree that it's not what we had hoped it would be. Um, but I think um, it's always good to temper expectations. And I think, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty cynical. There was, right, right in between the two waves, uh, there was a big lull in our campaign for District 20. And um, it was hard to get that energy back, I think. And I was pretty cynical about a lot of races um, in, in that time period. And th then the energy kind of picked back up again, and I got a little bit more hope. But I think um, the, the, the results were better than, than what I thought they would be in my, in my most cynical state. So um, <laughs> I guess that's a silver lining. Um, and you know, as far as like, uh, YPDA is concerned, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's great that, um, Adrian and, and Janae will be advancing to the general, um, and, and Michael as well. Um, and we'll see what happens with, with Michael's race, but I think it's, um, it's, it's a pretty good, uh, certainty, uh, or, you know, I, I think it's a pretty good bet that, uh, Adrian and Janae will both be, um, seated representatives, uh, come next term. So. Um, and, you know, Amy and Tina are the, the two progressives in the House uh, as of 2020 session um, managed to hold on. So, you know, as far as the slow buildup of that voting block that we need to force issues uh, onto the floor and to uh, advance legislation through committee, I think um, we are building on, on our existing um, structure there. So that's, that's a good thing for sure, um, even if it wasn't quite what we were hoping it would be. I think, so my biggest, obviously I'm biased, Becky's campaign was hard to see her come in third, um, 
But I also think Kim Coco Emoto and that race, that was hard to watch, but also to see that she was able to get so close to the Speaker of the House. Um, that tells us that there is growing um, momentum around sort of challenging the status quo. And I think that's really important for us to, to bear in mind as we struggle and sort of grapple with what happened. Um, yeah, so I think, and then another thing that was hard for me to see is how many people went unopposed. Like, I moved out of Becky's district, actually. So I am in um, districts 9 and 19, um, Senate 9, Rep 19. And so I didn't have anyone to vote for because um, my candidates ran unopposed. And, you know, Stanley Chang and Bert, I forget his last name off the top of my head. but like, Kobayashi. Kobayashi, thank you. Like, you know, they're okay, but, you know, just to see that apathy in our, in our districts is, you know, whatever. Um, so I started looking at, you know, who is getting a lot of no votes, like um, people who are incumbents who are running unopposed and who aren't getting votes. Um, and I was just looking at different races, and um, one of my least favorite people is Donovan De La Cruz, and he won, you know, he got so many votes, and he was running unopposed. And so looking at those types of like, dynamics and trying to analyze it, I think is really important. Uh, yeah, I can relate to Hannah on that. Where I live, my Senate is uh, Glenn Wakai. My uh, House rep is Linda Ichiyama. I don't have too many problems with them. I've, you know, definitely spoken to them a few times. Um, Linda Ichiyama in particular is really responsive to me. So I really appreciate that. But yeah, not having the choices kind of hurts, right? So you get the ballot and you see, okay, I got Ed Case here. I have Glenn Wakai. I got Linda Ichiyama. I got no choices. And it wasn't until after I cast my vote, but I thought, you know what, stupid me, I should have marked the Republican bubble and picked like the least offensive Republican for Congressional District 1, um, because then I, at least I'm having a say in something. Um, hindsight, 2020. That's uh, the motto for this year, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of blank votes, um, I mentioned the Senate blank votes, uh, and there, there were kind of too many House ones for me. I didn't want to take up too much time, but there were some House races, um, particularly on the Big Island, that just had astounding amounts of blank votes. Uh, Mark Nakashima had 47% blank votes, no challenger. Chris cool. Todd had 52% blank votes, no challenger. Um, Nicole Lowen had 40% blank, no challenger. David Tarnas, 42% blank, no challenger. So <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, I think, you know, if we're, if we're looking at places that we want uh, to, to field candidates in 2022, I think Big Island, um, which tends to have a, at least as far as the, you know, their, their delegations to the conventions, they seem to be pretty progressive. Um, so I, I'd like to think that there'd be someone amongst those, those folks that um, we could, uh, we could convince to run in those races. Um, the one race on the big Island that was competitive um, with a progressive running in the primary was house three. And that was Shannon Matson running against Richard Onishi and, and Shannon did, did well, but again, just not well enough to, to unseat um, Onishi. So, um, but you know, maybe some of those other races where they're just getting tons of blank votes, it might make more sense to run someone there. In addition to thinking about, um, the next time around, I also think it's important to think about the primaries. So like 
talking about Big Island. Um, Heather Kimball ran for city council. She came in second. She's going to have a runoff. Obviously, the Honolulu mayor, there's going to be a runoff. Um, so instead of like getting down in the dumps about Becky's race, I immediately was like, who can I help? So I reached out to Heather's people and I was like, hey, if you need help phone banking, let me know. Um, I have Keith Amamia's website and signed up to potentially volunteer and phone bank with him. So that's another way to sort of channel your energy um, is with some of those runoff races. Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to talk a little bit about uh, city council and mayor and that, that kind of stuff since we're sort of on the topic? Oh, this is Bart. Can you hear me? Yep. Yep. Um, I just wanted to push back against the, um, the uh, facile reading of the blank votes on the Big Island. Oh, yeah? Uh, it's not an accident they're all on the Big Island. And I think it's related to the uh, Ikeka Marzo uh, race for mayor more than anything else. You had wow. a lot of non-traditional voters, particularly Native Hawaiians, who probably took a ballot just to vote for Ikaika. Mm. And I think that's why they didn't really have opinions on the other races. So oh. it's not a phenomenon that is on in other counties. It's just on the Big Island where it's so extreme. It doesn't mean hmm. there aren't, you know, blank ballots, ballots in other places, but nowhere near as extreme as on the Big Island. So I think it would be a mistake to assume you know, that there's not a unique big island factor in that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's that's why we that's why we wanted you on here, Bart. That's a good point. And and also the the Lanakila uh or or you know the Oha Hawaii Island seat might have um done the same thing, brought brought new voters in who didn't really care about the state house level. We're just voting for that. That's a good point. But yeah, uh, city council and and Hannah, I'm so I'm super glad that you said that because yeah, we're you know this podcast is about the doing, so I'm glad that you brought up the um, the the very important point that you know there is another election coming up and um, it's still an important one for a lot of these races, um, in, in particular these runoffs that have happened. Um, so yeah, the mayor's the mayor's race, Honolulu the mayor's race, we have. Uh, Keith Amamiya um, going to be challenging Rick Blangiardi, who got the, the highest vote total. Um, what do you guys think about that race? Um, I think the old white dude, sorry, but, but I don't know how to say his last name, Bilargi? Blangiardi. Blangiardi. He's like, he's like, <laughs> he's like Donald Trump. He's like, I'm anti-establishment. I'm a businessman. I'm going to fix everything. Like, what is that? How did he win? I was so sad. And I'll be really um, upfront. I actually only voted based off of the pollings prior to the primaries. And in second place was um, Hanabusa. So I actually voted for her for that reason alone, even though I know she's done some sketchy things. And I was really bummed at myself because Keith actually came in for second place. So, oh man, I should have voted for him. But um, so maybe that's part of the reason I felt guilted into helping his campaign. But I just want to <laughs> see anyone but Bilargi win. Yeah. Yeah. On, <laughs> on, on that note, um, there's a lot there with that mayoral race. Uh, and in particular, I want to talk about Blangiardi. Um, first of all, the. Oh, how do I put this? I, I felt, I mean, because the mayoral race was such a shit show of various ranges of shit, um, <laughs> that we maybe could have had a more like, at least small sort of like campaign, I don't know what word to use there, for like a not Blangiardi kind of thing. 
um, right? Like, fo- like forever, however problematic the other folks are, maybe f- they're a, a little less, right? So like funneling people towards one in particular um, so we could kind of not have Blangiardi. Um, and the other thing is just how that, his race and his position as an exec or whatever with whatever the corporate news media station he's with is, it's just despicable, really. Like, I don't know, and Coniello was kind of tweeting about this a little bit, um, you know, quite, you know, making great points. And how, like, how is that a thing? It's, you know, it's just, um, anywho. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, 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 he Citizen Kane did, you know, he, he yeah. has just as much, if not more, household name recognition than any of the established politicians. Um, because of that media empire that he was at the the head of i don't know maybe empire is a little too strong it's just just and it's not even that he was at the head of it but he was able to do his john fink think about it thing where he you know every single day forever over the last couple years he's been able to have his little mansplaining space where he hand gestures way too much and (laughs) and where my family changes the channel at that um yeah, and you could tell that was basically part of his strategy. Right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, to, even years in advance, right, using that kind of platform to get his face and name out there um, beyond, like, I guess he kind of came from maybe, like, a UH sporting community or something. Like, he might have done football. Yeah, he was, a fo- he was a football player, yeah. Or something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I don't know how we would address that, like, as a community or in government, like, regulations or something against it like, was making suggestions about like there needs to be like a cooling off period bes- between like someone who has control of public media like that and then they're running for office or something but i haven't i don't know what the range of solutions could be but yeah. that was really eye-opening for me well as far as that sort of funneling that you're talking about tyler i think that's what will happen going into the general um is that you know people will people who like I, I don't know exactly what the to the extent it is but like i can see a lot of hanabusa supporters probably going to amamiya um a lot of uh you know people who are proud to be democrats that voted not for amamiya would i would think go for amamiya i mean he's the only one who's actually made like made it a thing to say like yeah i am a democrat um and i think he's kind of positioning himself as as that not blangiardi candidate you're talking about um, at least going forward into the general. I think that's my calling is to be like Hanabusa supporters for Amamiya, like, and just try and get that, that momentum going. Like, let's, yeah. call, let's call everyone. Um, because that, that race is really concerning. Yeah. How about, uh, how about the prosecutor race? No, can, can we hold on the uh, mayor yeah. thing? Because I yeah, want to yeah. say something about Flangiardi. Sure. Um, like, his whole campaign shtick is i'm a businessman government should be run by like a business and this is something that i think on a national level we need to reckon with is that this makes for really good campaigning because people go oh yeah i love businessman like this businessman here can um run government like a business that sounds really good let's flash budgets let's do all these things that businesses do and the problem with that is that business should run like business government should run like government you shouldn't have a government that's run like a business because it's it's government. It's something that is completely different. Run like universities, and not <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, 
we see that with the president, right? He's running the country like a business, but how's that working out, right? Yeah, well, he's a shitty businessman to too, though. Still run, huh? Exactly. <laughs> so if you get a shitty business person who comes in and they go, okay, I'm going to run government like a business. Now we're going to have the government run like one of their shitty businesses. Right. Um, I'm not saying that he was a bad business person, but I think that's one thing that we need to strategize on just on a national level is how do you combat that argument? Because it is so appealing to people who are conservative, leaning to the right, even leaning to the left. Um, you know, it may not be the most compelling argument for people like us, but whenever we need to bring them into our side, um, we need to be able to respond to that. Um, so thinking about the, uh, the mayor's race, um, I, I didn't get involved. I did vote for uh, Amamiya, um, but I sort of had a pox on all your houses kind of attitude towards the major <laughs> candidate. Um, I liked Chun James as a gadfly. I didn't like her to be mayor. There's no way she could manage the office. And I'm not one who likes to file protest votes as some sort of message. Uh, it's not clear to me what the message would be in that case. Um, but I think there may be a basis for, instead of us like running behind Keith Amamiya because he's not Blanjardi, um, I sent an email today to a couple of people who showed their proper respect by not responding yet, uh, saying, <laughs> what can progressives, can environmentalists, can economic justice activists who have some standing in the community, some credibility, what can they ask of Amamiya? What assurances can they get? What concessions, what promises, maybe in terms of the programs or policies, but also maybe even in terms of personnel uh, before we run behind him because he's, you know, the not Blangiardi candidate. So that's the first question, sort of thinking strategically and trying to get concessions and not overinflating what our importance is and, and how much they need us. Um, I guess that's it on the mayor's race, is, is I'd like us to figure that out. What do we want? And when he, he advertised himself in his own ad as the one who's, who's being described as the most progressive candidate for mayor, what did he mean when he was using the word progressive? And if there are progressives who have been working on his campaign up till now, I'd like to have them make a progressive case to us mm. for Amamir before we rush over to behind him. It, that kind of sounds like what we're trying to do with Joe Biden. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we may have more control, though, over Amamiya than Joe Biden. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, on that, what, what are some things that stand out to people as far as need, room for improvement on, on Amamiya's platform? You mean what are some of those concessions that we'd like to ask for? Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, w I wonder about his sport background, right, with HHS. Uh, meaning that he probably has exposure with youth communities. And if that's like a potential, you know, kind of place in terms of the, the kind of community issues that might swell around younger folks. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure really how to really think that through, but. That's... I mean, I, mean I, I, I feel like, I feel like, on his platform, he, he kind of says most of the right things. So I, I don't know if it's um, 
adding new things so much as like making sure that he does what he said he was going to, what he says he's going to do. Um, I mean, he like, you know, and I think he, the fact that he is aware of YPDA members and youth activist organizers, particularly in the environmental um, front. And I, I keep going back to him just straight up name dropping Jin Shin and Dyson Chi in one of his interviews um, that, you know, there's room there to, to seek an audience and, and have them sit down with him and, and really like outline for him what it is that young people want to see in terms of environmental policy. And I, I, again, I think that it mostly lines up with what he's saying, but making sure that he actually does that is a different, different question. Uh, sorry. Um, what, what was it with June? Like, um, uh, in Amamiya, Mia, I, did, I didn't ever see it. Like that. That, I think it was in the Sierra Club uh, forum that um, Sierra Club held with the mayor's mayoral candidates. And, um, you know, it was, it was like one of the questions about, like, how are you going to incorporate trees or something into, into your city planning policy and stuff like that. And, I mean, the whole, obviously, the whole forum was environmental, environmentally oriented because it was Sierra Club. And so I think um, in one of his answers, he, he talked about the importance of youth organizers in passing some of the the recent city council measures and, um, and, and attributed some of that success to um, the, the drive that young organizers like Joan and Dyson have. I think that was basically the, the bent of his comment. So um, switching gears a little bit, and that same, I think it was the Sierra Club uh, forum, the question that was asked about policing, and the question was yes or no, do you support um, money for HPD to go into uh, mental health services? And Hanabusa was actually the only candidate who said yes, that she supported that. So Amamiya didn't. And that was one of my deciding factors. Although I was concerned that Hanabusa just said that because it was like the cool progressive thing to say right now. And she was the only one that got that memo. But that's one of the things that I would like to see Amamiya be stronger on is like, um, everything that's happening nationally, like seeing um, less money being thrown at HPD, like we know HPD is corrupt, right? We know that um, Pacific Islanders, Hawaiians, Micronesians are disproportionately incarcerated compared to the percentage they make up in the Hawaii population, similar to Black folks on the mainland. So that's one issue that I would be like, hey, you got elected mayor, you need to work on um, defunding the police and making things right with um, rates of incarceration and that sort of thing. Um, and like, I do criminology work, so that's really important. I think we lost you there, Hannah. Okay, I thought someone was saying something, but yeah, that's like, so I'm like eating popcorn, I don't want to show my face, but yeah, that's like one thing that's really important to me is like, um, policing is a huge issue that I don't think our local politicians are really understanding what we want. Um, and and then going back to what Fu was talking about with um, running politics as as businesses, um, that's a very neoliberal model, right? Like, so it's you know this idea of like if you're a new progressive, that's what neoliberal means, right? You're gonna like this idea of um, something running as a business because it'll allow for progressive things to happen. Um, and so I think language like neoliberalism is sort of alienating to a lot of people. Um, and so I don't think we should necessarily use that language, but it's language that a lot of YPDA folks maybe know. And I see Tyler making a weird face and maybe he can speak to this a little. I know it's his favorite word, 
Um, but I think like we need to stop speaking jargon to people um, about politics and neoliberalism and say like, hey, this is what we want our government to look like and how can you help us get there? And I think that's how the Amamiyas of the world, the Joe Bidens of the world, I think that's like, there's like some sort of disconnect in the discourse uh, between people who are pro-neoliberalism, like Joe Biden, Amamiya, Amamiya, and people who are anti, like all the people on this call. Yeah, so speaking about um, police reform and uh, in matters of that, that nature, I guess, I, I thought I'd bring up Jackie Esser since uh, certainly in the progressive community, right? I figure there was a, a ton of support. It was, it was, uh, and to me, it seemed like she was just getting more and more support, uh, you know, uh, as she, as time went on. And I was really surprised more than just, just let down, but surprised that she, she didn't gain. Yeah. That, that she finished as she did. Um, and I don't know. And for me, the first thought that, cause to me, I guess something like, the prosecutor race was almost like a litmus test between, you know, like determining just how, uh, I don't know, I guess how, how progressive people are as far as uh, what they're ready to hear in terms of, um, uh, you know, what, what Jackie was standing for. And in so many words, I figure like to, to put it in one, you know, term, I mean, defund the police, I figure that's kind of a, a dividing uh, term at this point. And I, you know, so, Thinking about a lot of the things we talked about, it seemed like to me, you know, in a, in a very simplistic way to look at it, um, you know, the, the House to me showed us a, some indication that, that, you know, Oahu is, or that Hawaii is, um, you know, is, is, is seeking more progressive uh, options. But, you know, something like the Jackie Esser uh, race, though, it's made it seem, you know, I, I, with as much hype as it seemed like she was getting and, and as controversial as it seemed like it was, um, in terms of, you know, uh, people's response to her and the debates and, and the attention she was getting. I, it, it surprised me, I guess, because I was, I, I thought that, I, I don't know, I guess to me, like, like I said, I, I feel like it's a dividing kind of a, a, an issue, uh, you know, police at this point, you know, and I thought that us being, you know, a, a, a very blue place and, uh, and also in response to the uprisings that, that yeah, whether she would have won or not, but that she would have at least beat out Megan Cowell. But um, I don't know. So, so what do y'all think? Do you think that we still have a lot of work to do as far as kind of um, you know changing the minds and hearts of people? Yes. Uh, yeah. Like thinking of the folks who would support that, in particular, like the people who attended the BLM marches. I felt old there, right, at age 30. And so a lot of those folks, even thinking of the women, the amazing like young women organizers who started it, the marches, were um, high school students too. So some of the, a lot of the folks there who would have definitely voted for her platform, um, A, were not potentially a voting age, but also um, of, of a young demographic that isn't so much of a voting kind of people yet. You know what I mean? Like. Um, and so it might have been pretty difficult to kind of translate what seemed like a, an immense popularity for her into actual vote results. Because um, I'm thinking of people, like, and because I'm thinking of how she, unlike how Emma Mia or Blangiardi would claim, is kind of actually an outsider, political outsider. And that like, I didn't know who she was at all until she started popping up on social media. Um, I want to say a lot of other people who would even agree with her platform quite a bit um even older folks that might have been the case for them like they like i'm thinking of my mom my mom 
fucking name. Butter for her home, right? But but I think like a name a name like uh, a name like Om or even Cow like has name recognition for her. I mean, she doesn't know what their platforms are about. She doesn't know that stuff. She doesn't spend the time to do that. Um, it, it's definitely very much a part of it. And I definitely want to say that like um, because she's not a recognizable name or a man like Om, um, that both. I want to say like gender and race came into it for her. Um, just as someone like people aren't familiar with, especially as a, a white woman, how, you know, that's despite of like her fucking awesome platform in my mind, um, that people were, were apprehensive to vote for her. Um, even people like, even people, progressives like us, like I was thinking when, even when, like when she was first popping up in my mind, I was first um, seeing her exist, you know, existence out here, right? I, I, my, I'm like, who is this white lady? Um, but her shit is good. But um, yeah, so I want to say that had a lot to do with it is, is both her gender relative to Alm, you know, thinking of the two main white candidates getting votes there. Um, but then relative to Cow is her lack of name recognition, but also just local, local seeming identity. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and then also that kind of whole youth vote stuff. Right on. Uh, real quick, I just wanted to, for more logistical purposes, we're coming at uh, close. Uh, we're coming at the end of the hour here. Uh, we can go on a little bit longer, but uh, wanted to kind of transition us to, you know, sort of the meat of I figure uh, YPDA activity and and our podcast is uh, is yeah. What do we do? What do we need to do moving forward? Uh, so I'll pose that question out and see what happens. Well, I think like what I think what Hannah said earlier is really the obvious thing is that, you know, there is another election and there's still work to be done. Um, and, um, you know, Jackie didn't make it, so we can't, uh, campaign for her. Um, Amamiya, we may feel lukewarm about, um, but I think Bart's, uh, idea of trying to get out in front of the general and, uh, out in front of his, um, hopeful victory, uh, and, and ask for those concessions early is a good idea. Um, and, and use that as a as uh, use our support um, in so much as it's worth, and, and I, I think Bart's right that we shouldn't overplay that. But in so much as it's worth, um, try to leverage that to get um, a more progressive uh, platform out of him, or or commitments to follow through on that platform. And then you know, there's other runoffs too, right? There's other runoff races that need to be organized for. Um, if you're anti-TMT or even, you know, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but if you're, you know, pro-Indigenous sovereignty or Indigenous self-determination, um, I would suggest organizing to help Lanakila uh, win his uh, Hawaii OHA seat, Hawaii Island OHA seat. And then there's some city council races, too, that are going to run off. There's um, Augie T against Willis Barrow. And, um, you know, Willis Barrow was in the legislature for like 20 years or something. So he's not an outsider. but um, during his time on, you know, health and human services committee and, and other, um, you know, social justice committees, I think, um, he's shown that he's generally speaking an ally of, of reform. So that would be one that I would, um, and, you know, compared to Augie T who's, um, is conservative. Um, I think that would be one that would be worth putting some energy behind. Um, and there, there's probably some others too, um, that other, other people can speak, uh, more strongly on, um, perhaps, uh, Fu, would you like to talk about uh, Radiant Cordero uh, and Jacob Aki's race? Because um, they're going to a runoff. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, actually, I would say this is one of the things that um, I would mark as a, a disappointment. And it's not a disappointment in the result, because the result is Radiant Cordero gets to move on to the runoff. But having three candidates start out in the primary, I really wish we had an election reform that allowed for an instant runoff. Because what we have to do as a campaign now is continue campaigning for a few more months. That's more fundraising. That's more phone calls. That's more of everything, especially in this year in which we had the, the ranked choice voting for um, the president or for our presidential nominee. Um, it would have been nice, you know, had that been the case, but we got to change the system, separate issue. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the reason why I am behind Radiant has more to do with a personal connection from having met her through Democratic Party functions for my district. Um, and she's just someone that I know that I can trust um, to be an ally to what it is that we want to see, especially in the built environment and doing things with zoning or affordable housing. Um, Jacob Bucky does not seem like someone who's particularly bad. So it's harder for me to actually draw any distinction between the two other than the fact that um, I happen to know Radiant going into this. So you get that, that biased connection immediately. Um, so that's all I could really say about District 7. And then the other runoff, uh, District 3, I'm actually pretty encouraged by the two people who made it to that runoff. Um, and this mainly comes from my affordable housing advocacy and seeing which candidates would be most likely to be allies to affordable housing development, especially whenever it gets to issues like zoning or um, the 201H um, exemptions from uh, our state law that allows for development of affordable housing in residential zones. Um, I'm encouraged to see Esther Kiaina and Greg Thielen there, um, just because I think that they'll both be affordable housing advocates. So I'm encouraged Ooh. by District 3. Ooh, we might need to talk about that a little bit. Um, I, that's uh, the Kailua uh, Waimanalo area? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bart, do you have any, any comments about Greg Thielen? <laughs> I've been real close to the Thielen family, meaning uh, Cynthia and uh, Laura. Um, I used to go into Cynthia's office and I'd approach her on issues and to lobby her. And I would make the joke. I'd tell her she's my favorite Republican in the building. And she'd turn back to me and say, and you're my favorite Democratic Party hack. <laughs> um and, and when my mother died, uh, Laura and Cynthia invited me to have Thanksgiving with them, um, which I really appreciated. I ended up going to the mainland and, and having Thanksgiving with my sisters, but um, I was very, very moved by that. Um, Greg Thielen is not either Laura Thielen or Cynthia Thielen. I'm sure there are some family, admirable family traits that he shares but his own um, political philosophy is considerably more conservative. Uh, I think he's a fairly conservative Republican. Uh, I don't know if he was ever a Trump supporter. I don't know that he was not a Trump supporter. I wouldn't be surprised 
either way. Uh, so I think the power of the Thielen name gives him a great advantage. I kind of expected he would come in ahead of, of Esther. Um, I supported Esther when she ran for the second congressional district uh, thing, the multi-candidate race where you had uh, Mufi versus whoever would emerge as the anti-Mufi candidate. And uh, Tulsi is the one that emerged as the anti-Mufi candidate and won that uh, by a large margin. But I supported Esther. Uh, I've always considered Esther to be extremely bright. Uh, I think she's independent-minded. That has gotten her in trouble in the past. Um, she worked for Ed Case's office for a while. Um, she worked for Danny Akaka's office. And then she got hired away to work for, uh, I think, the representative from Guam, because she has ties with Guam. And then from there, she got hired to um, Ed Case's office. I believe that's the, the timeline. And some of Danny Akaka's people did not forgive her for working for Ed Case. This is prior to Ed Case running against uh, Danny Akaka. Um, I actually got paid to uh, lobby environmentalists and social justice people for the Akaka campaign against Ed Case. So I have no love for uh, Ed Case's voting record. Um, but uh, I found Esther to be very, very bright, very, very smart. And she has a lot of background helping land management for Kamehameha schools, which I think uh, can be used uh, to good advantage for the people of Windward Side. So I, I'm act, I'm actively supporting her, and I encourage people to uh, do the same. Uh, right on. Yeah, right on. Yeah, um, something I I kind of wanted to see what everybody thinks about is um, as far as what we can do, you know, moving forward uh, and to learn from the past is uh, it just makes me think about a conversation I had with. Uh, this person who used to, you know, vote conservatively, but then switched. And she said, you know, one thing that she found that was, you know, that, that basically, basically the right had a, but yeah, that the right had a, an advantage over was, was that, you know, people basically voted as a block, you know, and, uh, and it, it was, it was kind of like, Hey, we're all, we're all doing, you know, we're all showing up here at this time, blah, 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 wear this. And, and, you know, and people would do it. And, um, and I don't know, and I'm and I'm I'm trying to think of how we can, because I figure, you know, just logistically, most of us will probably vote on the same slate, probably you know, honestly, like the the Pono Y initiative slate, and if we could basically pool ourselves as volunteers rather than being so tied to a specific campaign and saying, okay, I'm going to volunteer for this candidate uh, as my you know kind of primary place to go, that if we could somehow organize to to basically vote, yeah, vote, vote as a slate and vote on a block. And uh, uh, I don't know, but what do, what do you all think about that? This is something I brought up to Will um, on election night because I, I wasn't very educated on the election this, this time around. Um, I was really going through a lot, but um, I, I had asked Will, like, uh, just tell me who to vote for. Um, like, and I think a lot of people who like-minded progressives like us, especially uh, younger folks, um, they trust people like us who like say other progressive folks who see us as like them, they trust us just to tell them who to vote for. They'll tick the box and do it. Uh, I'm thinking even of like, I had a bunch of friends who had contacted me um, about who to vote for and I was able to kind of point them in the right directions as far as I knew. And um, I think it's something as simple as that. 
works because um because i was thinking how within the hawaiian community folks were posting about who to vote for for oha um and they were kind of doing it a little inefficiently like i'm thinking of like jamaica osorio for example you know, did a great job saying like here's who i'm voting for and why for oha um but she posted it like say as an instagram story and that expires right and so say when i was trying to find it from from her like who jamaica was voting for i couldn't right and so I think just even having like a popularly known out there, maybe through social media or something else, just like having that slate, like this is what your ballot looks like. These are the people that are going to be on it. Vote for these people of those. Um, that I think people who trust progressive orgs who might lead that kind of, you know, little information campaign, um, I think people, it would resonate for folks, or at least in terms of uh you know, organizing their vote a little more strategically or kind of voting for a block as opposed to like, oh, they get one vote correct in this election, but then vote for some trash person and something else. What I think you're saying is that you want to see a YPDA voter guide, um, which I think is something that we should probably do. Fun fact, my mother made my voter guide for me until I started voting in Hawaii. And now Natalia makes my voting guide for me i don't know yeah, yeah i think i think Sorry. a voting guide would be helpful yeah no go ahead tyler yeah something like that and, it, and it, you don't even have to, it doesn't even have to be so detailed if people trust us as orgs or like-minded people um but just as a way to even just thinking of our targeting within our own progressive communities and, and potential voters um just getting tightening it up a little bit i don't know how to put it in all seriousness, I helped with the voter guide for AAUW this go around, and we selectively chose races based off of where our constituents were. Um, but I think, like, we asked a very few amount of questions. We were like, Title IX, um, equal pay, and one other issue. And I think that's something that we could do for YPDA is just pick like three top issues and then have candidates for all the races that we find important based off of who represents YPDA and then just go from there. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I, I will say though that, you know, the, these things do get created. I, and I, I think part of it is that the, the organizations that create this are somewhat siloed. And so the, yeah, the, yeah. the focus may be more narrow, but I mean, in, in 2018, um, right before I got hired by Appleseed, I was still freelancing for the Hawaii Independent. And um, we actually created a, a voting guide for pretty much every race um, that was happening that year. And the metric we used was, we, we created a metric that was based around change, like candidates that are most likely to change the status quo. That was like our guiding principle in terms of, of uh, the guide. And we didn't expressly recommend people like because we're we're we were a news um, station so we weren't really like in the business of recommending but we did because of that metric um, in each race sort of highlight at the top of that particular race the candidate that we thought would be the most likely to create change um, and we we went out and we even we interviewed some of them we took pictures we put together a whole guide um, Evan Tector helped me um, create it and it got a fair amount of views. I mean, like, I think we released it in four parts, one for each county. And um, we, we basically got, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30,000, um, you know, unique visitors to each guide, roughly. You know, I think the Oahu guide got probably the most. And I think 
probably the Kauai guide got the fewest, but I think that was based on um, readership and also just population of the counties. But, um, you know, we did try to do that. And I, I think, I hope that it helped. Um, but I think what it comes down to is that like none of our individual brands are really strong enough to reach um, enough people on, on, on our own. And, um, you know, when Jeff was talking about how conservatives are able to kind of just like march lockstep across national campaigns with one another, and, and you saw this with the Tea Party, um, it's important to remember that the Tea Party movement was astroturfed by the Koch brothers and they, they had a shit ton of money. Um, and so when you have like that much money, it's much easier to get people to, to do the same thing because you can offer incentives um, you can, you know, hold these, these really cool rallies that are really interesting and have amazing speakers and, and music and all this kinds of stuff to get people um, amped and excited and energized. And, and we just don't have that, those resources. So cobbling yeah. it together makes it much harder. And, and I, I'm not saying there isn't a way to, you know, unify it and, you know, maybe Pono Hawaii Initiative can fundraise and, and hire um, a team to kind of um, bridge that gap between different progressive organizations and create kind of a unified guide. But I think that we are just naturally at a disadvantage because our constituency is working class folks, not billionaires. So it's, right. it's tough. Tyler, you wanted to speak. Yeah, no, and, and Bill is just starting to, you know, question on that, the, the unified guide thing, because, because, you know, I, I knew, I do know that these voting kind of guides exist, right? And, and Will had mentioned that they're kind of siloed, right? And so I'm thinking like, if, instead of all of on our own, our various orgs having our endorsements and guides, but having it, like, I'm thinking of the groups, the, the orgs that would attend, say like the Hawaii People's Congress, Congresses that we've had. Right. Like all those orgs at once doing one guide together. And then because it's one guide, we can better disseminate it to the public, whether through whatever media forms, um, as opposed to like say, oh, um, YPDA has their guide and we'll send it out, but oh, then it just becomes so monotonous, like or so much, so much repetitive labor of like, say, and then yeah, it gets uh, lost in the noise. Yeah. And then, and then another progressive org, you know, has their voting guide and maybe we send it out. Maybe we're tired from sending out votes already. So we don't share that one or something, but, um, just having all in one, one place, I think would be I really think, nice. I think the issue there is like, because of the way politics in Hawaii are, are organized you have a lot of people running in the democratic primaries and then so like i'm just going to give examples like aclu of hawaii they're going to be like oh like we don't like this one candidate for this one reason that planned parenthood is supporting and they're supporting it because it's the only candidate that's like or it's one of two candidates that's anti-choice uh, i'm sorry pro-choice and um, and so I can see why the dynamics there, because we have so many candidates running in certain races, why it would get difficult. Yeah. And one, you know, one thing that I've learned just, at, uh, trying to manage YPDA is that, you know, um, there's a lot more hoops for nonprofits to jump through than there are for corporations. And, uh, you know, corporations can kind of basically do whatever they want as long as they pay taxes, but the nonprofits have a lot of rules associated with their, their tax exempt status. And so, you know, some nonprofits have C4s, some don't. Um, and, and so I, I think it would be difficult for all, all of those nonprofits to get on board at the same level 
there may be certain things that some nonprofits can do that others can't. So that's another barrier just right there is that so much of the, the, the institutional organization behind the progressive wing of Hawaii politics is, is rooted in nonprofit work that that makes that, that presents an additional challenge for unifying one another. Because again, like the Koch brothers, they just have so much money. They don't need to team up with anyone. They can just do whatever they want. Um, whereas <clears throat> like Appleseed, um, can't recommend candidates because we, we're not a C4, but Hawaii Children's Action Network can because they are C4. So there's that additional hurdle as well in terms of presenting this unified thing. And like, you know, that's basically what the Common Good Coalition is, is supposed to be about, um, is, is trying to unify and cross silos and make sure that we're working along the same avenues. And it, it works in so far as it's better than it was before, um, but there's still a lot of challenges with it. And especially when it comes to candidates and, and the C4 issue, it becomes even more challenging than it already is just for legislative work. One of the criteria that I use, and I haven't heard any discussion of this, and it makes things tricky, is I was looking for independent candidates. That doesn't mean uh, people who are not Republican or Democrat, but people who are willing to stand up to the House and Senate leadership. Um, so when we talked about progressives that won this cycle. I'm not convinced that some of those people we're calling progressive are going to be independent from national poll of Scott and Sylvia. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. to me, it's like, I liked Micah Pregitzer in large part because I knew he was going to be independent. I mean, I liked him because he's a school teacher who's been devoted to public service. I met him and I liked his personal style and he said all the right things. But what was really important to me is that I really thought he was going to be independent, and I didn't think Patrick Bronco was. Um, so, and part of the problem when we try to come up with either a scorecard to evaluate the voting records of incumbent office holders, or if we ask candidates to fill out a survey and see where they stand on the issues, is that approach adds, has some value, but any of us who track bills know that someone can publicly say something as a, as a stand, you know, uh, in the public record, but then in the caucus, when you have enough contacts, you find out that they were actually working to kill a bill that they were publicly supporting or they were inserting poison pills. So it, it really requires a great deal of what might be accused of being subjective evaluation and which is where people's friendships and prejudices come in when you try to figure out who to recommend. I don't know that it's possible to come up with one comprehensive guide. Um, a C3 might be able to um, publish um, a group of guides. A Honolulu Weekly, when it was going, I think did that for a while. They would give you, who, this is who the ACLU is endorsing. This is who Planned Parenthood is endorsing. And they would have multiple ones. And you'd look and you'd see, hey, well, why is it that uh, Sierra Club is endorsing this person, but ACLU is not? And it, it forced you to, to think a little bit. So it may be publicizing multiple guides with slightly different viewpoints um, might be actually a good way to get around the, the C3, C4 dilemma. Uh, but I think that the structure of nonprofits, it's not an accident that they're hobbled. Uh, it's by design. Uh, the elected yeah. officials want to have these organizations be sort of captive 
and have to be on their good side and not confront them uh, in the political arena if they don't get what they want. Uh, so that, I, like, I found the common good uh, coalition to be kind of frustrating because so many of the people were trapped in that century bind. Yeah, 100%, definitely. Yeah, that's another thing that I definitely learned this election season is, um, you know, non nonprofit. And I already kind of knew this, but it's different when, when you're waiting for the results of an endorsement decision to come in and, and you don't get it um, from organizations that, on the surface at any rate, um, as far as we, you know, stand for publicly, you would think would be 100% behind your candidate. And that happened to us a, a couple of times. Um, and, you know, I know the reason, the reason, you know, it's, they, they would say it's, it's strategy and that's fair, I guess, but it's still disappointing um, to have a candidate that so clearly lines up with those values, not get the endorsement for that reason. Um, and, and it really made it clear just um, how, how hobbled um, some of those organizations are by the status quo. And I mean, that's the whole reason Appleseed transitioned away from LEJ or actually I take that back. I'm sorry. That's the whole reason LEJ was founded in the first place is because it used to be basically like a wing of legal aid and um, the, the federal government made it um, impossible for those kinds of organizations to do any kind of legislative advocacy um, that were, if they were taking any money from the federal government. So we had to form a, an independent nonprofit to do that. So I, I am very familiar with um, the, the fact that nonprofits are, are sort of um, pigeonholed into these very limited uh, abilities to, to, to make change and have to, you know, transform themselves sometimes into completely different organizations to continue doing their work. But man, it, it, was, it was kind of heartbreaking in some cases to see um, some of the endorsements go out and, and not, not select. And of course I'm biased, but not select my candidate, but yeah, um, I think uh, it, it. I think that sort of Honolulu Weekly model that you talked about um, makes sense to to uh, aggregate, I guess, those different guides, um, and and then people can kind of, like you said, notice that hey, this candidate's been endorsed by all four or all five of these nonprofits that are in this guide. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, or this candidate's only been endorsed by two, but not the other three. So what does that mean? You know, I think that that kind of makes sense. So, yeah, like as far as some of these uh, these barriers toward being able to have a more unified voice and uh, and and yeah, and consolidation, um, you know, like bottom line, what what you can or cannot do as a nonprofit. Uh, I definitely hear. Uh, but I, I think I guess thinking a little bit uh, like bigger picture or zooming out from that. I uh, I don't know. I, I t t for me. I, you know, I, th I wish that we had, you know, kind of a flagship organization, I feel like, as far as what represents progressives. And for me, it seems like that's YPDA at this point. But, you know, I know it's going to be biased because this is a YPDA podcast with a bunch of YPDAers. Is that what we call them? But yeah, um, YPDNesians um, are uh, <laughs> <laughs> that are uh, that. You know what? What do you all? What do y'all honestly think? You know, stepping outside of a, a YPDA, uh, you know, identity. Like, do do we think that YPDA? You know, to be as honest as possible, do we think YPDA is kind of the best vehicle to try to, you know, be the be the unifying voice in uh, in Hawaii at least, or do we think it's another organization? Bottom line, like, who has the most influence right now of progressive words? What do y'all think? 
I feel like I feel like if if I mean from my perspective, I would say Hoppa more so than YPDA. I mean, um, I don't think YPDA is is Hoppa Light or Hoppa Junior. Like I think we do <laughs> other things, but in some ways we kind of are. Um, I mean, even even <laughs> insofar as our our like structure, like because we're not a nonprofit, um, we can't take uh, grants that are designed for C threes. And so even just this last um, this last spring. Um, Jeff, when you and I went out and did a presentations on ranked choice voting, that was a grant that was actually given to HAPA that then HAPA then hired us basically as contractors to go do the work um, and paid us the amount of that grant to do it. And that's how we had to do it because we're not a, we're not a C3. Um, so uh, I, I think YPDA does excellent work. And, and I obviously, you know, I wouldn't have spent as much time as I've spent with the organization if I didn't think that we were doing good work, but I don't think that um, certainly at the statewide level, but even just on, on Oahu, I don't think that you could say that YPDA is like a dominant force. I mean, we're, we're noticed um, people take notice of us and, and, you know, even sometimes publish our stuff in media and, and whatnot. But um, I don't think anyone's like quaking in their boots quite yet to know that YPDA is up against them. Um, although, you know, I mean, I, our, our, our influence is felt, you know, I, I think a lot of YPDA members uh, were active participants in Ken Coco's campaign, along with uh, members of ALU and members of uh, the Democratic Socialists of, of Hawaii. And I think that kind of cadre of young organizers, um, whether they explicitly identify with YPDA or not, um, is definitely a growing force that is being felt. And that's only natural. I mean, it's, it's kind of our time to, to, to take the reins in some ways as, you know, people that are in their, generally speaking, in their 20s and, and early 30s. Um, this is the time for us to be running candidates. This is the time for us to be dorking on issues. And we've done that and had some success, but um, we're, still, we're still pretty, um, pretty, like in need of, of some stronger organization and some funding and things like that. So I, I would say if there's, if there is a group, um, I would say it's Hoppe that is, is kind of that, that guiding voice. And, and they were the kind of the first ones that sort of took that uh, environmental environmentalists, indigenous activists, labor activists, and kind of brought them all together under this roof of, of, of progressivism. Um, and, um, with the, with the Pono Hawaii initiative pack, I would say that they're probably the ones that, you know, like when, whenever somebody would ask me, like, who am I going to vote for? I would generally forward them the link to the Pono Hawaii initiative endorsements, um, for that exact reason. You know, they're, they're kind of the ones that are looked to, I would say. Right on. Uh, Tyler, since uh, you were going to try I, to speak. Can I speak? As oh a, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I want to speak as a HAPA board member. Um, HAPA is, is a C3. And um, we are not involved in campaigns. The Kulian Academy trains people with, you know, practical political skills. Um, and we do recruit progressives. But we have speakers. We've had Republican speakers, establishment Democrat speakers. Uh, we've had people who took the classes, I think even the Libertarian and, uh, and a couple of Republicans. Uh, so, and we're not trying to be hegemonic. I think what we're looking for is, uh, influence rather than power, particularly. And I think that um, in general, groups should try to develop influence and, and any notion of being 
aspiring to be hegemonic is probably a mistake. It's it's better to figure out how do we contribute to sort of the extended family or the interlocking networks of influence um, rather than try to be sort of hegemonic, help midwife other people and nurture other people's efforts and encourage them. But um, that's sort of the approach that I take anyways. Yeah, and I think I think Hoppe has done a, an excellent job of that. I mean, with the People's Congress, with you know nurturing organizations like YPDA, with being an integral part of the establishment of the Common Good Coalition, you know, wh- whatever you want to say about that, I think it, it has made a difference. Even if it's um, it, it's definitely frustrating at times because there's so many um, folks under our, our under our tent. Um, although you know. I would, I would say that Bart's probably familiar with that as being a longtime Democratic Party activist. The Big Ten mentality can be frustrating at times, but I think that um, it does make a difference. And um, insofar as, as doing things like the, the uh, um, People's Congress, um, it, those events are just so enlightening and so um, energ- energizing, too. I mean, I, I always come away from, from those events and you know, there's been two people's congresses, but then there were also like a whole round of, of meetings that led up to the first one. And those were just some of the like the best just events that I've been to, period, hands down. And no question about it because of the, the folks that get pulled into that and the folks that are, are a part of that are, are so um, just so ahead of the curve as, as far as policy and as far as um, uh, where we want to be in mentality and the idea of taking care of one another and all these things that we that we that we espouse as progressives are just so perfectly embodied by those events um, and and I think so you know again there's a lot of different organizations that do a lot of good work but if I ha- if I had to pick one that I think of as the progressive sort of leader um, I would still go with Hoppe and and you know like like Bart said, there's C three, so they don't do the electoral work necessarily. But that's what the Pono Hawaii initiative is for, is to do that. So I would really love to see those two organizations bolstered, and and you know I I would personally try try my best to fundraise for for either of those organizations, both of those organizations at the same time, because I think that that's money well spent and and time well spent to try to um, to bolster what what those groups are doing. And real quick on that, I just wanted to clarify that. You know, um, I definitely, yeah, I definitely think all, all the groups that are on the island, um, we're on the islands as far as, you know, people we could classify as, as progressives are doing great work, you know, uh, despite the limitations. Um, but I guess, yeah, just, just, just to clarify, like I was, um, and I think Will did a good job of answering it as well as Bart, but just uh, that, um, yeah, that, that, you know, that I, I personally think it would be great to think of it like, uh, I don't know, like, like, uh, like elementary school or middle school or something um, where it's like you have, you go to your different or like middle school, you go to your different classes, but you have a homeroom and like, and that's certainly <laughs> on a personal level. Like I want a homeroom, you know? And I feel like even though, even though we're, our, our thing is being the big tent, you know, that's like, a great metaphor. I like that. it's, it's a nice, it's nice to know that there's like, yeah, I feel like an umbrella organization is very necessary. And that's why I initially thought why PDA, you know, cause it's, that's exactly what it does. But, but I forgot about, you know, because I, I think I associate Hapa as being more of kind of like a, a behind-the-scenes player uh, that I forgot about it. But, yeah, I, I, I do agree that I think um, with you, Will, that, that I think Hapa could potentially be kind of like, yeah, the homeroom uh, for my purposes. And, uh, but at the same time, yeah, I think we need to, we need to definitely not try to be hegemonic and, and foster um, 
yeah, be, be a midwife, as, as, as Bart said. I, I really like that. So I, I, real quick, I just want to, for logistics, we were, we're getting close to the one and a half hour mark. So I thought we should let Tyler have the last word and then uh, have our close out from there. So Tyler, I know you've been patiently waiting to speak. What, what do you got to say? No, it wasn't last word so much as I had a question of, um, in regards to this question number five, we were talking, you know, we were, we've had this long discussion about kind of slate-like things and the Big Ten homeroom. Um, it was just, what about, what do we do, need to do moving forward in the more immediate? Um, was kind of what I was just wondering aloud, really, to myself. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, then maybe, yeah, we could just uh, spend, like, two or three minutes just going around with people who want to say something about that. Uh, I'll, I'll, as long as I'm on the mic right now, I'll just say real quick that I think moving forward um, without being, you know, like overly, I don't know, kind of pragmatic to bordering on cynicism or something, but I, I'm personally going to be, uh Oh, okay. Never mind. I think we're good. Um, I personally think that, Focusing at this point, you know, since so much of the of, of the elections that we were invested in are uh, haven't decided already in so many words uh, that, yeah, focusing on congressional races uh, is important as far as like like phone banking for for, you know, people in different states. That is because, um, yeah, I mean, just just I mean, we, we, we yeah. got to make as much progress as we can at the national level now now that things are getting more and more stressful for everybody. Um, but yeah, so that, that's that's just my two cents. I think I think for one statement, we just need to we we should just focus on congressional as the main thing. Anybody got some other thoughts? In addition to all the things people have said, um, <clears throat> I think that we need to like share our knowledge. Um, I learned so much working on Becky Gardner's race. It's invaluable information and like. I learned a lot from other people like Natalia, Will, Becky, Kim, everyone with Hoppa, but especially Gary. Um, and that's great. And I couldn't have done the work I did for Becky's race without that knowledge. So like sharing knowledge is important, but also just like getting out there and doing it. Like everyone that I just mentioned and all the other people who have helped us, like they could have shared that knowledge with us. And I would have been like, cool, now I know this which is kind of what Kuliana Academy is. But without having a candidate to like do that for, it's like, do I really know that stuff, right? So like, just like actually doing it and helping people and supporting people is really important. That's right it. Right on, Hannah. Anybody else got thoughts? Yeah, me, I just, um, I think, because of these trying unprecedented times and my free time because of that, I'm going to try to devote some small amount of time, however, to Lana Kila, just because I see him not as just an excellent person um, for that position and for our communities, but also because I could, I see him very much as a, as someone who will stand up to Akina in that office. So, mm. um, yeah, so I think that's kind of where I see myself, at least in the near term, maybe devoting some labor. Right on. Uh, food, did you want to add anything about what we need to do, you know, in the short term moving forward? No, I think everyone hit that up. Let's get to work on whatever races are important to us 
for November. Sounds good. Uh, Bart, did you want to contribute? Uh, no, I've, I've spoken enough. I'm not even a member of YPDA. I'm too old to be a young person. <laughs> that's, that's okay. How about you, Will? Did you, what, what about your short, you're kind of like, yeah, in the near term. Yeah. Um, in the near term, uh, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm still, I'm still district chair for the democratic party here in district 20. Um, I, I intend to run for neighborhood board again, as soon as I'm able, um, as soon as the next election is up, I, I had to resign that post cause I moved, but, um, I intend to do that again. And, and I intend to canvas our district as the chair and try to recruit new Democrats, try to sign up new voters. Um, I, I'm definitely going to continue working on some of the campaigns that we've mentioned. Um, you know, Lana Keela being one of them, I think. Um, and I have a, a, a new YPDA board to organize uh, coming up. So uh, I need to get on that and, and create a, an, an election for a new slate of people to come in um, and, and continue to work uh, legislatively um, next session. There's a, a lot of work to be done in terms of sort of holding the line against austerity, I think, um, in this time. And so being um, an active participant in the legislative process come January, I think is going to be super important. Um, the work that I'm doing at Appleseed is going to inform um, a lot of those decisions as far as I'm concerned, as far as what bills um, I'm going to be supporting and, and testifying on in favor of and on behalf. Um, and then I also think that uh, we just, we need to continue to uh, build our stock and our bench of, of progressives who are, are well-trained and I want to encourage anyone listening who's thinking about taking that step to be either a, a candidate or a campaign manager or a campaign yeah. treasurer, which is in super hard demand. It's really hard to find qualified treasurers. And, and Hannah did just a, a phenomenal job as treasurer for Becky Gardner's campaign. Um, so, you know, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about wanting to take that step and become more than just a sign waiver for a campaign to really check out Kuliana Academy. I'm sure there'll be another cohort uh, announced um, at some point soon. Um, and it's really important, like Hannah said, to, to do that knowledge sharing thing. So one of the things that I would really like to do um, in collaboration with Hannah and Tim Vanderveer, who is our field organizer for Becky Gardner's campaign, and also did just an amazing job of getting um, people to show up for sign waving and getting si our signs and banners up all around the district. Um, in collaboration with those with that team, I would really like to um, create a guide um, based on our experience uh, in this election yeah. um, and and use that guide as a way to to help other progressives that would like to run in 2022 and in the future um, to help them chart out their campaign plan because um, you know to be perfectly honest with you like even even going through Kuliana Academy and, and hearing from some great speakers and taking as many notes as I could. Um, there's like Hannah said, there's nothing like actually doing it. And you just learn so many lessons about what you should and should not do, or more specifically when you should do stuff and when you should not do stuff. The timing was really just, um, something that you can't get from a, from a class, no matter what, like knowing when to do certain things is, is just really hard to know unless you're in that particular situation. And this year was, was obviously different because of COVID. Um, but I would really like to create that guide 
um, and, and um, make it a blueprint for other progressives to run so that they know exactly what kind of team dynamic they need, how much money they need, um, and when they need it. And, you know, when, when, when is a good time to start sign waving? I think we, we, sign wave, we started sign waving too early and kind of lost some momentum. And again, COVID was a, a big factor there. But, you know, just that kind of timing of knowing when to, to, to activate your volunteers and, um, you know, uh, when to send out mailers and things like that. I think it would be just so much easier for, for new candidates um, and give them the time to really focus on what they need to do, which is door knock and, and talk to folks. Um, if they had a plan that they could just, they, they know that this plan is reliable and it works uh, and, it, and it's based on experience. So that's something that I would like to do in the near future is, is create that, that plan and um, disseminate it um, possibly on the YPDA website. I'm not sure exactly yet, or maybe I'll just send it to people, but um, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot, that can be done. There's so much that can be done. And uh, we need as many people as we can to find um, even just a few hours uh, a week to, to do some things that would really make a difference for, for candidates and really help them um, put, that, put those, really close, those really close elections just need to get nudged over the edge. And I think um, if we can just kind of refine our tactics and refine our strategies, uh, we'll be able to do it even even when we're outspent, you know, three or four to one, which is often the case. So that's that's what I would like to do in the near future. Right on. Thanks for that, Will. Uh, okay, so we're out of time here, uh, unfortunately. But um, just want to thank all of our uh, attendees today. Uh, I Jeff Kim. We had Hannah Liebrick. Is that how you say it? Can you say your name, Hannah? Uh, Liebreich, but Liebrick is fine. Liebreich, okay, Will Carone, uh, Tyler Greenhill, Bart Dame, and Fu Fam. Uh, so this has been the Ways and Memes uh, post-primary elections episode. And uh, we thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next month.